And you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Salmon. 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 To Salmon Fest Radio. Hello, listeners. Although you do not know my voice, I've been here with Salmon Fest Radio since the beginning. I'm Kira Hardy, your editor, sound engineer, producer, and today, host. This is our last episode. And our last show of this mini-release we've been calling Bonus Episodes. And it's a special show because it's going to be a review of some of the speakers and artists we've featured over the last two seasons. The first efforts of recording this radio show and podcast started back in 2019. Salmon Fest 2019. Since then, we've featured two Fisher Poets, 20 bands on our show, and 31 Salmon Champion features. And truly, it hardly scratches the surface of the people we've talked to. So in this recap episode, you can think of it as a highlight reel for our masterclass in the world of Salmon and Salmon Fest Festival. You'll hear many voices today. Bands, poets, and what we call Salmon Champions. Like we have in every episode of Salmon Fest Radio, I am recording today in the basement of Cook Inlet Keeper, situated in Kachemak Bay, the traditional and unceded lands of Dena'ina and Supiak people, and whose people we are continuously inspired by to protect Alaska's Cook Inlet watershed and the life it sustains. So the first voice we're going to listen to is... Featured from season one, Amy Kulik, who is a storyteller based out of Washington State. So I've done a lot of listening, piecing together this show. <laughs> and Amy Kulik's interview really stands out to me. Is is it's a very, very memorable because of her way to translate kind of big ideas and tell the story of interconnectedness and abundance and relationships. And she has a really wonderful perspective of looking from the outside in. And that's where I really wanted to start this review. I am not a scientist by training, but I do read, you know, scientific journals and papers from time to time as best as I can. and. In my research, I um, stumbled across um, a scientific paper that talked about this remarkable connection between salmon and trees. And I struggled because it was written you know, for other scientists, but I, I got through it. And when I got to the end, the light bulb went on and something clicked and I went, whoa, do, do you mean what you're really trying to tell me is that there are salmon in the trees in Southeast Alaska? And that is really what they were trying to tell me. They just didn't say it like that. You know, instead they said the upstream flow of marine derived nutrients in a terrestrial environment. And for me as a storyteller, when an idea won't leave my head, that is when I know I have to pursue it. And that idea, that concept that there's a place where there are salmon in the trees, that just would not leave my head. And so it stuck and I decided, all right, I, I have to learn more about this. So then I started my travels, spending a lot of time in Southeast Alaska. And it was, it's just absolutely remarkable, you know, to be in Southeast during salmon time, 
just seeing just, you know, gobs and gobs of salmon leaving the ocean, making their way into their birth streams, you know, to spawn the next generation. So salmon are born in freshwater streams and rivers. They head out to the oceans to mature. You know, they come back as adults to their birth streams to spawn the next generation. And when they do, there are lots of other animals waiting for them. And in Southeast Alaska, there is the highest concentration of black bears in the world, one of the highest concentrations of brown bears in the world. And it's no surprise why. You know, again, when you when you see, you know, just gobs of salmon coming into more than 5,000 salmon spawning streams found throughout the Tongass in southeast Alaska. So bears, these coastal bears, salmon is a very important part of their diet. You know, it helps them put on enough fat that gets them through their winter hibernation. So they're doing their darndest when the salmon are, are spawning to catch as much as they can to be able, you know, to put on the weight that they need. So scientists studying this phenomenon uh, of salmon in the trees, they originally set out to study how much salmon bears ate. And the only way that they're gonna do that, right, is to sit on salmon streams and watch particular bears catch salmon all day for days. And what they quickly realized was that, you know, bears, a lot of bears don't sit on the streams and eat that salmon. They take it, they grab it, and they run into the woods with it because they're trying to avoid having their meal stolen by other bears. So the researchers are like, oh my gosh, in order to quantify, you know, how many salmon bears are eating, we're gonna have to go into the woods and follow these bears. And they went into the woods and like, wow, look at all these salmon that are left here. They're everywhere. And then, and then they looked up and they said, wow, look at the size of these trees, you know, that are near the salmon stream. And hmm, you know, what's going on here? Our researchers studying this have documented that one bear can carry 40 fish from a stream in just eight hours. So that adds up to a lot of salmon dragged and dropped into the forest. And over time, the nutrients from the bodies of all of those salmon decompose into the soil and the trees absorb them through their roots. So one of the nutrients that the salmon are bringing in their bodies, it's a, a nitrogen variant, it's called nitrogen 15 and it comes from the ocean. So what scientists have found in the trees near these salmon streams, when they started analyzing tree core samples, is a ridiculously high amount of nitrogen 15. The next voice I want to share with you is from season two, Drew Hamilton, who is a bear viewing guide. Amy and Drew complement each other by setting the stage of Alaska's abundance of salmon and their cyclical relationship with soil, habitat, and the success of all species. Here's a taste of that conversation we had with Drew Hamilton, season two. Yeah, it all comes back to the salmon, really. For so many things that we do in Alaska, it all boils down to the salmon. Now, salmon, in a lot of ways, are the, the, the conduit between the marine ecosystems and the terrestrial ecosystems. And you gotta think of bears as, uh, as nature's can opener. Really, so as these bear or as these fish are swimming back up the streams, the bears are catching them. They're digesting them. They're opening them up so that you know the gulls, other birds, the the other smaller animals um, can take advantage of, of the scraps. And they're also helping spread that nitrogen through the system. Uh, 
well, through the ecosystem by using their digestive system. I don't want to go into too many details, but uh, it turns out bears don't just shit in the woods. Uh, they shit everywhere. And that's actually very important for passing this nitrogen around uh, the ecosystem. And so really, it's up to us to decide whether or not we want to live in a world that has bears in it. In order to make it hospitable to them, um, it does require large tracts of intact ecosystem because it takes a lot of habitat to make an individual bear, let alone a population like we've got. You're listening to Salmon Fest Radio, and if you're just joining us now, we have a special episode for you today. It's our two-season review episode. We just heard from Drew Hamilton, and before that, Amy Kulik, who painted this picture of intact ecosystems and salmon being the heart of that complex network. Which leads me to a tiny slice of wisdom from season one with Dr. and Professor Tom Quinn, a salmon and trout guy who has an entire career studying in Bristol Bay. He reminds us to honor the uniqueness and the gift of salmon. I mean, remember, every salmon that's caught in the fishery is a virgin, right? Every one of them. I mean, for most fish and game management, the rules are all designed to allow the animals to breed at least once before we start hunting them, whether it's, you know, they take male crabs or you don't shoot does in season. All these regulations are designed to allow the animals to breed. All the sockeye, all the salmon we catch are virgins. And yet we can still, on a sustainable basis, catch on the order of half of them. It shows how remarkably productive they are. They do really well. Think about how much fishing they can sustainably take and the population just like a biological perpetual motion machine. These waterborne creatures are our connection to the world. to our souls spirits of the ocean children of the sea reaching out and diving down song that is spoken in a gesture in a fin a sparkling scale a glint golden eye
it's magical. Plug in the light so I can see. Flicker of Light, and that tune, recorded on the Ocean Stage Salmon Fest 2021, was about the life cycle of salmon and the moment salmon die after giving their life to the next generation. You can hear more tunes from Whiskey Class and a backstage interview in episode two of season two. And because now we've teleported to festival grounds, I'm featuring insight from icon Cat Moore of the super-saturated Sugar Strings. The full band sat down for over an hour and a half, and somehow I whittled it down to nearly fit our original format. Of course, we talked about music, fishy business, and the connection between art, community, and causes. You know, sometimes activism is an interesting thing because when you're trying to reach people with different values than your own, I think a lot of it is through connection, right? So you can have a song that's like, let me tell you about this, it's super important. And then, you know, if people already have an opinion on that, they don't really want to necessarily listen to that song. So I think just by creating a sense of fun and connection, we can then weave statements and value statements into our sets. And then maybe they leave the set thinking, oh, I never I never thought about that. Like, 
maybe I'll go vote, you know, or something. And so I, I feel like there's, yeah, there's so many different ways to integrate that activism into music, whether it's the actual song or the organizations that you're working with or just the message that you're putting forth on stage when you're not actually singing and playing, too. At the end of the day, like, you do want to share our values, the, the ones that we hope can help change the world for the better, but at the same time, you'd never want to polarize your audience, you know, because, again, you can't reach someone and change a harder mind if if you can't reach them first. And so you got you to keep that door open. But it is kind of fun because, like, working as collaborators in the Sugar Strings, like, I write a lot of very activistic poetry on my own, and so it's kind of cool because I feel like a lot of the people who read that poetry maybe got to know me through the sugar strings and stuff too so that's that's kind of a neat thing so there is this like ripple effect of working together as collaborators so even beyond the stuff that we're actually doing as a band activistically like that connection through the band with our community helps each of us in our own way access a different audience to share that kind of activism what's up salmon fest 2019 my name is Georgie Heverly. I'm a community organizer with Cook Inlet Keeper. I'm a commercial fisherman in Cook Inlet, and I'm a fisher poet. Now, we are all here this weekend to celebrate salmon, but we are also here to help protect salmon. Now, I want to share the inspiration that I gained with this poem and if you had a chance to stop by the Cook Inlet Keeper booth or at the screen printing workshop today, you saw a beautiful piece of art from a fellow organizer of mine, Jesse Thornton. And I'm gonna try and paint this picture for you. This image is of a woman embracing a salmon, holding it close to her heart. And her hair is swirling all around, enveloping her, and it reads, protect what you love. And now the word protect is incredibly powerful because protect implies that something is under threat. And everyone here knows that our earth is under threat from the effects of climate change. Alaska is under threat. Bristol Bay is under threat from the pebble mine. And so Salmon Fest 2019, I ask you, how do you protect what you love? Whether it's you or it is me, or endless salted seas, or cragged mountain peaks, forests sprawling far to reach, whitecaps breaking on the beach, we protect the land and water that we love. Stars burning blue and white, glowing twilight follows night, blinding dawn reflects sunlight, gazing east to starboard right, a blushing orb of warmth and life, we protect the sky we love. And with localized heartbeats, what defines us so complete, the lifeblood underneath, spawning crooked jaws and teeth, providing nutrients beneath, a miraculous cycle on repeat, a resource we must never deplete. We protect the salmon that we love. So whether it's you or it is me or every soul within humanity, what you defend so to be free with a fervor and intensity, but some eyes will never see that one day this earth will die, boiling oceans, scorched sky, water more synthetic than natural life, 
rising levels to new heights, from melting packs of polar ice. With blackened air, we pay a price. And as storms and gales do surge, all these climates seem to merge. There's a new reality on the verge. And as earth draws final breath to urge, from present energies diverge. Looking back, could we have turned to still protect what we love? Now that future's yet to come. This path can be undone if we take action for all and not just one. You accelerate change, uniting strong. Think not within, but far beyond to a global community to which you belong. Be it a village or municipality, a public school or university, a city council or local committee, that's the level of change we need to see. Where most effective you will be, whether it's you or it is me, or every soul within humanity, or marine life deep in the sea, or crawling creatures far beneath, or those in flight above the peaks. Protect what you love, and that is this a home we share in heart and in spirit. Save, defend, and then transmit. A dream for what's ahead, a place for children in our stead, who'll write a story to be read of those that came before and how we had to fight this war. We never asked to be part of, but we had to, to protect what we did love. Thank you all so much. Yes, that's the energy we love. Having a festival with a cause and sharing what 
and why it's important is the potent part. Common ground opens the door for connection to place and perspectives. And it's the vortex of people. The folks who will be affected sharing and talking to the attendees who are new or visiting. And of course, the musical acts who get to vibe with us and share their Alaskan experiences with the world. That authentic connection has played its part and paid off. For now, Bristol Bay's threat has waned. The near two-decade fight has been snuffed by conservation easements and a veto from the EPA. Once more, I want to fully submerge listeners in the Salmon Fest grounds. Here is a tune from longtime Salmon Fest troubadour Tim Easton from a special set playing with members from the Hope Social Club. Make sure to check out Tim's backstage interview we featured in season one. We showed up to the festival, fell out of the back of the van. We were just in time to see our favorite band. All the people out there looked just like us. They were young and old, they looked just like us. Remember that beat, remember that song. It never felt so good to sing along. I was wondering why it felt so good. When I looked into a dozen pairs of eyes And I understood When we all come together It feels like the world is gonna be alright In the middle of the night by the fireside You played my favorite song Share the smoke and we beat the drum. Ooh, baby, won't you ride me high? Saw you dancing to the new moonlight. From Ninil Chick to Yasker's farm, we'll wake up in each other's arms. I was wondering why it felt so good. Then I looked into a hundred pairs of eyes And I understood When we all come together It feels like the world is gonna be alright
and pizza toppings and other things When we left the festival we were crying in the back of the van Well it could have been the drugs it should have been your van But it could have been the hugs it should have been your van Saturated sugar strings, super saturated sugar strings, super saturated, super saturated, super saturated sugar strings. Oh yeah. success. Be recharged by the win. 
and roll up your sleeves because although our favorite fish is resilient and steadfast in Bristol Bay, warning signs throughout the state leave many Alaskans uneasy. Newcomers and transplants might not know what loss looks like for such a vast state, but Alaskan natives have millennia of oral observations. Scientists have decades of data. And the second half of the show, we're hearing from them again. We're listening to Salmon Fest Radio in our last episode together. This show is special because I'm taking you on a review of many of the voices and music we've featured over the last 21 episodes. So let's step backstage to hear regular host Satchel interview Sam Schimmel. Sam has appeared twice in our Rolodex of Salmon Fest radio episodes. He went through the Arctic Youth Ambassador Program and continues to be a young Alaskan native leader. So on our way over here, we were talking about this idea that Salmon Fest really focuses on conservation and, and creating collective action around preserving salmon landscapes. But can you expand on this idea that sometimes conservation and preservation can almost be prohibitive to maintaining that connection to fish? How would you put it in your own words? Preservation can be very alienating. Uh, For instance, the preservation of marine mammals is something that we in my community of Gamble are often hit with. Uh, We're a whaling community, we're a walrus community, we are a sealing community. And you see preservation groups that don't understand the intricacies of traditional means of management or traditional ideas of catch and subsistence telling us that harvesting whales, harvesting seals, harvesting walrus is not okay. When this is something that we have done for thousands upon thousands of years. You see community members like a 16 year old four years ago who was the recipient of so much hate online from groups because he had struck a whale and because he had harvested a whale for our community. And I think that's where preservation can go wrong in a lot of ways, where it cuts off use, it cuts off interaction with land, and it fails to recognize that humans play a critical role in many, many ecosystems. Where conservation, I think, improves on that is that it recognizes that people are part of an ecosystem. It recognizes the role that we play in managing that ecosystem and managing that resource, and it recognizes the importance that that resource plays in our lives. So for instance, with salmon, you see some of the fiercest advocates on behalf of salmon are communities that rely on fish for subsistence or rely on fish for economic profit. And these are the groups that are standing up and fighting for fish alongside of preservation groups. If we move too far in the direction of shutting down fisheries, of preventing people from harvesting salmon, you're going to see a reduction in the number of people that care about fish. You're going to see a reduction in the number of people who care about conserving salmon and ensuring that the next generation of people has fish to subsist off of. So you're right, conservation is a lot more inclusive of human relationship to the land and the animals, but still there's a very traditional way of managing that interaction. Certainly. Do you have perspective and thoughts about how that management could be more inclusive of indigenous leadership and practices 
and and traditional knowledge? I know that's a big question in our state, maybe in our whole nation doesn't do enough to think about it. I think the idea is of maximum sustainable yield, which is the standard to which fishing game regulates fisheries and game, is something that has been around for a long time. Our traditional communities understood what uh, sustainable yield looked like. Our traditional communities understood that if you stretch a net across an entire river and you leave it there for too long, maybe not next year, maybe not the year after that, but the year after that, you won't have any fish. And so our systems of management were to get enough food for our families to eat, get enough food for us to put up food for the winter, get enough food for our communities to thrive. This idea of subsistence doesn't take into account the thrivance that was held in many of our indigenous communities. And so our management has always been community first. It has always been preservation of human life and human tradition first. And I think uh, some of the things that you're seeing now are not in line with those traditional values. Mm -hmm. I, I can't speak on it, but I think that it would be very much a value add to talk to somebody from the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta about what's going on down there and about fisheries management in their areas. Uh, I'm not from there, so I can't speak on it, but I think it'd be good to have somebody from there speak about that. This next voice is from a subsistence fisherman named Charlie Wright. He's from a small village along the Yukon River we had the pleasure of talking to you in season one. Here's a slice from that conversation. The managers tend to manage people. They try to do the best they can. A lot of years now, we had a moratorium and that is the only thing that was really effective on making more salmon come back up the river. They say three times more fish come back when there's no humans fishing on the river. If we have to, then moratorium is in line again. That's going to be real hard on the people. We hope that if there's really low numbers that we get just a little bit of opportunity so people can eat and we could continue our culture. But if it's real low, then we'll have to just switch to a four inch mesh net that doesn't target salmon to catch local species to let those fish go to the spawning ground. We're kind of to the point now where we're gonna lose them, lose the whole king salmon run in the Yukon River if we don't take drastic measures. So we hope and we pray that good numbers show up but we are far from out of the woods conservation of king salmon and chum salmon on the Yukon River. A lot of fish camps along the Yukon now are brushed over. They don't operate no more because of lack of opportunity and lack of numbers of salmon. So you can't, can't say that the people along the river are, are any part of the, the decline of salmon in the Yukon. There's nobody hardly fishing anymore. There's no more dog teams. So it's something else that's going on whether too much commercial in the past, 
And definitely something in the ocean is causing those fish not to come back. And, and uh, a couple of years ago, we had heat stress. We had a really hot summer and, and the water was low, really low, the lowest I ever seen it in my life. And on the Kaikuk River, there was thousands of chum salmon found dead along the river banks because the water was so low, the sun in the hot summer warmed up the water to a temperature that they weren't used to and it caused stress in those fish. So they died before they spawned. They find them thousands on the beach uh, with the eggs still in. And that's a shallow river, fast river. So it, those fish were able to be seen and washed up on the bank. Yukon is so big and deep that we think some of our kings might have died also, and the river is so big that it absorbs them. So I know that that, that summer did cause a lot more damage than we think on the Yukon. And in that same year, because the water was so hot, uh, some of the kings going up the river went off into cold, cooler contributaries, clear water creeks going into the Yukon before they got to where they usually go. So we don't know this for a fact yet, but I've seen in my own eyes salmon in a creek where they, they're not normally there in that many numbers. There's a lot more there now, and they were seen going into the mouth bank to bank real thick. So there's a little bit of hope there that maybe they're not going to Canada no more, and they're spawning in Alaskan contributaries to the Yukon. Now, that would be a prayer answered. Um, sad for our Canadian brothers and sisters, but at least maybe there's hope for the salmon. I hear there's um, more genetics going to be done, so we could do some testing in the future to see if those salmon and those where they're being seen where they weren't before, or maybe it was long ago, we don't know. We want to get those tested to verify whether they're still here, and uh, there's hope for their numbers to continue, and then we're looking forward to uh, in-river sonar so we could back up uh, the sonar that's at pilot station near the mouth of the Yukon counts the fish coming up river and they seem to be disappearing before they get to Canada so if we have more sonar in the river then we can know for sure what's in the river and get a better accurate count and if those fish king salmon are peeling off in, in Alaskan waters now instead of going to Canada it would be really good news for the species. The next feature is Dr. Courtney Crothers, who is helping teach the next generation of fishery students. She was a co-salmon champion with Dr. Jessica Black in season two. Dr. Black's voice will conclude this Salmon Fest radio review show but first, I'm using Dr. Crothers' setup to illustrate the paradox of local people, like the previous voice, Charlie Wright, having to solve a systematic problem that they did not cause. Here's a clip from that powerful conversation. I would take economics classes, and the whole point of these economic classes were to maximize profit from fishing and, and minimize fishing effort. And as an anthropologist who really is interested in people and communities, I would question the economists like, wait, that fishing effort, isn't that people and boats and communities participating in fishing? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, the more of that, the more cost, the less profit. So the whole goal 
with a lot of these economic policies was to eliminate people from fishing so that those that were left could make more money. And I felt really, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, like a working class family, I just saw a lot of like big equity issues emerging in my head around fisheries and how they were governed. And the more time I spent in Alaska, you know, early on in, in the Kodiak region and in later years, being able to partner with, with Dr. Black and other indigenous colleagues, just seeing the erasure of indigenous stewardship and governance and relation from, you know, how we teach about and, and do research and, and govern fishery systems in Alaska. And I think in our indigenizing salmon management project, Dr. Black has been a, a leading indigenous scholar kind of shaping how we do the work we do how we center relationship and care, how we center youth and elders. A lot of what I learned in graduate school really transformed into a much better uh, way of thinking about what research is and and who it's for and, and the goals of it. And so I've really tried to, in all of the work I'm doing, indigenizing salmon management and, and our new Demumpta program, really tried to center this base inequity that exists and, and try to help write that as, as somebody that's trying to teach the next generation of fisheries students in our colleges and universities. The final voice I'm featuring is Dr. Black expanding on her and Dr. Crothers' work, Demumpta, an indigenizing salmon science and management project, which recognizes the inequities embedded within the way we manage salmon and asks, how can indigenous values, knowledge, management, and governance mechanisms be better included in management systems? Just having recognized seats at decision-making tables. By recognized, I mean official seats at decision-making tables. You know, 10,000 plus years of stewardship, that is long-term data. Living in such close proximity to all of the places where salmon live and having daily outings out on the land. And when you're out on the land, you are, of course, fishing. You're looking for opportunities to harvest, but you're also just observing in close detail everything that's happening. And that knowledge is so critical, especially during these times of unprecedented change with things like climate change and then changing numbers of species. You know, a lot of my family and folks in my community are closely observing these changes and how they impact one another, that holistic viewpoint. And when we have these official seats at the table, we're bringing all of that knowledge to the table alongside Western science so that we can really see from this 30,000 foot view what is happening in real time to our land, our waters, and our animal species. Right now, you know, if I wanted to testify at the Board of Fish, I would have three minutes to articulate everything that I know and I'm seeing and what I think should change. And that's just simply an environment that's not comfortable to many of my people who we come from 
cultures where storytelling and oration are very much central. We need time and we need to be able to educate others and share what we know so that we can collectively do what's best for salmon and all of the other uh, relatives that we rely on. So official seats at these decision-making tables increased indigenous or tribal stewardships of lands, waters, and animals that literally are outside our front doorstep. And then research that is co-produced truly, meaning the best of Western science, the best of indigenous science together. Uh, There's an approach called two-eyed seeing, a two-eyed seeing approach that has been written about and promoted by Elder Albert Marshall and Dr. Andrea Reed. And in this approach, you see from one eye through the Western viewpoint and the other eye, the Indigenous viewpoint, together you're able to see clearly what's happening. And that's what we're really talking about. Because without bringing Indigenous knowledge and stewardship, we've seen what's happened to many of our species. Uh, Where I'm from, we closely rely on the king salmon, Chinook, we call it Hlukcho, and it's experiencing crash, really, just really low numbers over the past 10 plus years, and this past season we didn't even get to fish. So we need everyone to be a part of the solution, and especially my Indigenous peoples who are connected spiritually to the salmon to be at the table. There is a really important value in most indigenous cultures of relationality. And it's not just people to people, but people to non-human kin. And when people who aren't from that culture come in and they spend time with people in relationship, they start to see a small glimpse of that and begin to feel and understand that there is a difference. The refuge managers or, you know, fish and game people, you always knew the ones that were like the good ones because they had spent a lot of time with the people. And even when they retired, they would come back and share a cup of tea and spend time in the village and they they were considered the good ones because they truly cared not just for the sheep or the salmon or the moose, but the people of the place who lived in relationship to the things that they managed. What's really beautiful is that when we're talking about indigenizing salmon management, it's for everyone. One of our other projects that Courtney is the PI of, maybe she could speak to is Damamta. And in the Supiak and Yupik language, it means all of us. And that is such a beautiful title that we received from some of our colleagues in Kodiak region. And that's how we view the world, not to indigenize salmon management for ourselves, but for all of us, Damamta, because we are expected to share, we are expected to, you know, gift our first salmon or 
bring back our harvest and share with all of those who are unable to fish for themselves. And we think of the world in a holistic way. We have that respect for all of our relations. So what benefits us in the salmon benefits everyone. It's just a different way of thinking. And when people spend time in our communities and at our fish camps and in our in our spaces, they begin to understand that, but they really need to spend that time.
There will be no crackers on the pants you're wearing. And on that day, you will see what it all is worth. So, earthlings, don't keep your treasure here on earth. So, earthlings, don't keep your treasure here on earth. So, earthlings, don't keep your treasure here on earth. That's it. I have loved this project because it has allowed me to be a fly on the wall for all of these conversations and more. It has awarded me the opportunity to attend Sandfest, hear from the visionary leadership of Alaskan Natives, and learn from great nonprofits and the great employees who shape and inform their work. Thank you to Dave Applin and Satchel Pondolfino, our regular Salmonfest radio hosts, who have been with me during the last three Salmonfests and 21 episodes. Thank you listeners for making it here and enjoying this unconventional review show. Thank you to Pastor Tim for recording much of the music we featured during our 21 shows. Thank you to Cook and Keeper, the fiscal sponsor of this show. Thank you to KBBI for training me and providing much of the equipment we used. Thank you to Salmon Fest for holding the space to boogie down and provide opportunities for the audience to continue to learn and engage to protect our favorite fish. And thank you to the two Fisher Poets, 20 bands, and 31 Salmon Champion voices featured during our 22 episodes. And truly, a special thank you to those who we talked to but didn't air. Your heart and work continue to harmoniously translate and transform us into action more than you know. Stay informed, stay inspired, and share this episode. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and visit us at salmonfestradio.org. I'm Kira Hardy. Thanks for being here.